1: Very fine people. Very fine people. On both sides. And the,
2: and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So, uh, the Are a- you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah.
0: McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. Listen, I'm watching
2: CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power. To keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol.
1: Welcome to Yer Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us on the show today is Anastasia Canjere, a casual academic and race researcher. Thanks for joining us, Anastasia.
0: Thanks.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. So, I guess... To start with, uh, your academic work draws on critical race and whiteness studies. Just for the benefit of the audience, what do these studies consist of? And uh, how do you think that anti-fascists can best use them to inform their opposition to fascism?
0: Okay, yeah, so that's a huge question, a really good question. So critical race studies is probably kind of comes out of the US writings, mainly, I guess, kind of from the civil rights movement onwards. So there's, there's lots of people that you can kind of credit with beginning it, you know, whether it's uh, James Baldwin or Derek Bell, Angela Davis is obviously another really important writer there. And then out of that comes something called critical whiteness studies, which is, again, probably coming out of US scholarship people like Toni Morrison writing Ruth Frankenberg and Richard Dyer so different people trying to say well what is this conceit of whiteness what does it what does it mean and what kind of energizes it and and then what does it lead to so they're both particularly critical whiteness studies I'd, I'd say is a very academic kind of field and critical race studies certainly has got that just really strongly academic tendency, but also can be really clicked into activist type work. Yeah, in terms of what they can offer anti-fascist, anti-fascists and anti-fascist scholarship and activism, that's kind of like this huge question that I'm trying to answer at the moment. And and the paper that we're about to talk about is in a large part trying to answer that question. I think the short answer to that is that I think that they can offer a way to theorize the broader structures of whiteness and white supremacy that anti-fascists need to struggle against
1: so that paper you referred to was uh, one that you gave as part of a panel discussion on the contemporary far right last year it was called uh, fascists in and out of uniform making sense of street fascism in the broader context of white supremacy how do we make uh, sense of street fascism in the broader context of white supremacy <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'll also say that. So I pitched this. I, I, I sent in the abstract for this paper and the title and stuff before that extraordinary iconic image of the cop at iMark giving the white power symbol. I didn't mean to be. Apparently, uh, there's a there's some sort of in joke that I. Inadvertently referred to from fascist history. And I didn't mean to be making that that joke about in and out of uniform. I was I was referring to the cops as, as the fascists in uniform. So, in terms of how we make sense of street-based fascism, the I guess kind of the appeal that I was making in the paper was to ask people to be willing to see the connections between The fascists who we see organizing and who are are quite easy to identify and often quite willing to be identified to see them as being connected to a broader structure of of violence and of, of racially based violence and so that's kind of the the thing that I'm asking people to do in this is to not see fascism as kind of anomalous but to see it as 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 really connected in into something that goes that goes a long way further, and that arguably does more harm. It's it's not to say that I you know I'm very interested in anti fascist work, and I think it's really important. But to see that as being as being something that's connected, and that we as anti fascists have to be interested in. Yeah, that's the kind of the push that I was trying to make in that paper.
2: One thing I've noticed in looking at some of the uh fascists that are under discussion whether they're in or out of uniform is in uh, in the streets, but also online. There's often, well, very often, there's a sense of grievance. They're very aggrieved. And very often that's connected to their status as uh, white. Sometimes that's made explicit and sometimes not. But very often they seem to be, or many seem to be, struggling to assume or want to assume some kind of uh, status as being victims of political correctness or cultural Marxism or some other uh, malevolent force. Can you talk about what it is that drives that and what is it that makes it kind of resound among those who identify as white within the contemporary Australian context?
0: Yes. Yeah. Great point. And that um, idea of vulnerability and threat. So, the, the final chapter of this, so I've just finished this PhD thesis, which is very critical whiteness studies, very much within that kind of cultural studies methodology, academic kind of uh, focus, PhD. And in the final chapter of that, I talk specifically about vulnerability and threat and how those are recruited to the project of whiteness. And so I, I sort of identify that, particularly in these places of a bit more overt white supremacists. So, so like the fascists. And so one of the texts that I study is this speech that Sherman Burgess gave in 2015 where he talks about love and he talks about how fascists should not be energised by hate, but that instead they should be energised by love. And the way that love sort of turns into the kind of fascist call for violence is through this sense of victimisation, this inherent sense that whiteness and whites are threatened and are sort of deeply at risk from this sort of imagined invading other. So he sort of talks about how it's happening in Europe and it's getting closer here and he creates this sense of being sort of stuck and besieged and under threat. And I think that that is something that... You know, a lot of fascist organisers are really interested in that. You know, you see like the the 14 words, this idea of protecting the future of white children. Again, it's drawing on this sense of what's really under threat of whiteness. And then the idea also of being silenced, as you mentioned, political correctness, the idea that every avenue for self-expression is being foreclosed and that the self-expression aspect is becomes a kind of existential threat. So the fact that you're not allowed to express abhorrent views unchecked, for example, becomes reinterpreted as an actual threat to, to your ability to exist. So one of the arguments that I want to make is that fascists are really interested in this kind of discourse of threat and of arguing all the time for their, their inherent vulnerability But the argument that I want to make is that much more normative structures of white supremacy are also interested in threat. And, you know, when we think about, you know, immigration in the Howard years and and then again, I mean, always actually in Australia, the, the idea of needing to kind of fortify our borders, I argue, draws on that same sense of vulnerability.
2: The other thing that occurs to me in this context is very often in terms of the responses or the articulations by people like Burgess and others, I think sometimes there's an element of apologetics that enters into the conversation, which is very often centred on notions, I think, which are euphemisms, things like economic anxiety and so on. And it's a way of attempting to account for some kind of class dimension and also the extent to which, uh, you know, Uh, Figures like Burgess and other white male workers are subject to some kind of threat, which is then uh, recast as as stemming from, you know, in their case, the Muslims or the blacks or so on and so forth. How do you kind of um, approach those kinds of questions and how do you go about disentangling what might be the kind of political uses to which fascists and others put certain kinds of threats and the real kinds of dangers that I guess are part and parcel of living in a, a class society?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so tr- true because I absolutely think that as leftists, we want in some way to be able to respond to, and it's obviously incredibly kind of scrambled and the politics of it are terrible, but some of what fascists want to describe as as you know senses of kind of impotence or damage or threat or whatever some of that we want to be able to speak to or or at least hear um you know we know that like the true blue crew for example at least originally were really drawing their their ranks from from unemployed people from very economically depressed areas of melbourne and the, and you know the sense for example that's often expressed by fascists of, oh, we're politically disenfranchised, we want to be able to say, yes, you are, you know, as, as leftists, we want to be able to sp- speak to that. And, you know, and I'm thinking, for example, of the beautiful Sam Warman cartoon that he drew during the Trump election of, of, of leftists kind of trying to, trying to uh, speak to Trump supporters. Because one of the things that Trump kind of said, you know, and, uh, and without getting into the argument of whether Trump is or is not, exactly a fascist but one of the things that trump uh, said is that like america is damaged america is not good the life that is being lived in the, in the united states is there's something wrong with it and as leftists obviously we want to be able to say yes that's true there is there is truth in in what in that complaint or that sense of, of sort of hurt rather than like the clinton campaign which said no, the US has always been great. Um, There's absolutely nothing to complain about. And so I think that that is really important. But the question is, is how can we do that while sort of maintaining a really strenuous, rigorous uh, opposition to the white supremacist elements of that complaint? And I, I guess I don't always feel that on the left, we have gotten that right. And so that was kind of part of the the concern that I was trying to say there is that, like, let's, let's look at vulnerability and how it gets expressed, but let's also approach it with, I guess, the suspicion that it deserves because it's this actually kind of core recruiting technique of whiteness.
1: All right, I'm going to roll the dice on this question. This may or may not yield uh, any, <laughs> anything. Uh, so a sort of fact about the True Blue crew that, Largely goes unremarked upon, much to my chagrin, is that uh, as well as being drawn largely from a cohort of uh, uh, unemployed white people, uh, they also drew a lot of their early base from a cohort of fans of uh, the Insane Clown Posse. They identified very strongly as oh. juggalos originally. I is there know. any is there any critical race studies work being done into? Juggalos?
0: Oh man, do you know there? There almost certainly is. I'm yes. unfortunately not aware of any, but yes. Ah. I mean, the insane clown posse have such, uh, like great class politics. I would say so. It's sort of pretty sad to me to see that they that they can go in that direction. Although I guess it doesn't super surprise me.
2: I think they declared at one point that uh, the juggalos would be attending. As uh, so that the Nazis organized a rally in Washington or something. And the juggalos declared we're gonna go there. We're gonna chop you up that was kind of pretty, <laughs> yeah, yeah. pretty staunch, you know,
0: yeah, they are pretty pretty staunch often and in that kind of working class or you know, yeah Workerist kind of base politics community building and stuff. They can be really good for yeah But no, sorry, I don't know about <laughs> specifically critical race
1: that's alright. I I rolled the dice.
0: It'll it'll um, it, I'm sure it's out there. Yeah, it's just yeah.
1: Just to take us even further off topic, you are, you listed a whole bunch of uh people working in the field of race studies earlier and like studies of whiteness. I'm just interested in starting as much beef as possible. I noticed you didn't mention Tim Wise. Where does he uh control oh, this? <laughs> yeah,
0: no. I uh, yeah, I'll I'll go on record trashing Tim Wise for sure. Um no no, not trashing. Tim Wise is just like he's not an interesting scholar, he's a Actually, I don't actually know if he's a great activist either. But, you know, he's a kind of, um, he's a celebrity scholar. And he's also much more contemporary. So those writers that I was talking about, Frankenberg, Dyer and Morrison, are usually the three who are kind of credited with starting critical whiteness studies. They're writing in like the early 90s. Wise doesn't come along until, I don't know, at least 10 years ago. And, you know, his books are nice, I guess, but yeah, there's a, there's a kind of a bit of an unfortunate and, you know, I'm, I'm white myself and, and so I'm, I'm kind of very determined not to fit into this, but there's a bit of an unfortunate tendency for these sort of charismatic high profile white figures to kind of come forward and write these kind of blockbuster books and do a lot of speaking tours and not really, in my view, achieve very much or write anything very interesting. So
2: I'd put wise more in that category. So much for Tim. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I, I assume you're familiar with uh, Noel Ignatiev, uh, who died just uh, yeah. recently. He um, was responsible for publishing a, a journal called Race Traitor, which uh, by the title alone would um, presumably be uh, considered provocative by some. In terms of your own approach to questions of critical race studies and, and whiteness what do you make of the this concept that he and others developed of of, um uh, I guess uh, traitorship or or being a race traitor.
0: Yeah, it's it's super lovely actually And so the the way that I put it because I because I write sort of specifically about whiteness And try to do a kind of cultural analysis of whiteness, you know from the point of view of being a white person and so the metaphor that I came up, up with in my thesis was of a spy that I sort of was, you know, like a double agent and cuz I was also trying to say to the reader I understand if you're a bit slow to trust me, you know, that's that's always the way with 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 double agents. I think race traders are really lovely position to offer white people. I think a lot about how to kind of what options to to give white people to to in some sense liberate them from the, perhaps that's an unfortunate choice of word, but allow them a way to decouple themselves from this kind of loyalty to whiteness and in particular kind of the white nation and uh, the relationship to capital that that goes with. So many of these things constrain white people and, you know, for example, get in the way of their ability to build, the class solidarity that they so desperately need or, or whatever it might be. And so finding some way where you can kind of comfortably step outside of that. Uh, and I guess maybe, I guess part of that means renouncing that attachment to the sense of sort of wounded whiteness, but thinking this is actually kind of a farce and not something that I signed up for and not something, I mean, you know, cause it, I, to me, it kind of comes back to, Marx's idea about the loyalty to the to the leaders of the of the nation instead of to your your class position and I think that that offers a bit of a way to put yourself in the position of tradership but it is a it's a tricky kind of transition to make I think that's I guess where I have time for critical whiteness studies even though like it sometimes can I think become too academically focused but you know, whiteness is a very strong, distorting lens, and it's a it's a hard thing to break out of. And I think that critical whiteness studies gives you a way to study, to kind of look at why it is so seductive and why it is such a hard mindset to rip yourself out of. I think that's what it yeah offers.
1: You are listening to 3CR, 855am, 3cr.org.au, and 3CR Digital on your Dab radio. We are talking to Anastasia Kangeray about critical race studies and fascism in Australia.
2: We've, I guess, trying to make the transition from uh, race and and, uh, loyalty to uh, race and nation and loyalty. We've recently celebrated, or however, we've marked the occasion, um, the fifth anniversary of the first Reclaim Australia rally, Hmm. which took place in uh, April 2015. You've written a little about that and you've written about uh, the policing of such events. I was wondering... In light of the last five years, I don't know if you've paid close attention, but what do you think, looking back now on those initial attempts to reclaim Australia, and what do you think is the situation of, I guess, those kinds of nationalist uh, street-based movements and their policing in 2020?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, well, firstly, just to go back to my vulnerability thing, and I should have said this before, but, you know, the, just the title Reclaim Australia has already posits this sense of, of loss or of, at least of imminent loss. I think that, I mean, yeah, I, you know, there, there are, I'm sure there are people who are much more expert than me in, so, in answering the question of like, yeah, what's happened over the last five years. I think that I think that part of what has has happened is that fascism has moved more into the mainstream and that that has taken some strength away from the street-based organizing that, that there's I guess less sense of urgency because there's more sense of of representation I guess um you know particularly with something like Trump but there's all sorts of different ways that I think that's politically manifested as well as, obviously, um, the, the sort of, I guess, it, welcome by the police. You know, it's, it's, it's much harder to sort of, I mean, the fascists do still try to do it, but it is much harder to sort of run the narrative of, oh, we're so oppressed, we're so marginalised, we're so much outside of the political norm, which is, like, that's a very important kind of line for fascists to run. And it's much harder to run that line when you, when you know when you're when you're literally being kind of having your hands clasped by the cops and they're leading you past the front of Parliament House to, to where you wanted to go. So I think I, I think there might be an, an aspect of that. And that I mean I I also am of the belief. I mean I know that on the left we love to sort of hate ourselves and say that we've fucked everything up and are useless. But I actually think that the anti-fascist organising that happened was actually quite effective you know particularly if you look at how that um that reclaim rally that very first one was had this kind of you know mums and dads everyday racists kind of branding and that that just was no longer possible basically by july of 2015 i i think that that is a is a victory for for anti-fascists and i wouldn't i'm like by no means, you know, I was I was there at those rallies, but I certainly wasn't a deciding factor um, in in those victories. But I think, yeah, I, I do think that's a that's an important part of it. Was was the ability to isolate the kind of, I guess, explicitly fascistic tendency, which you know there, there there was there, but the the grouping was whittled down from what what could have been a much larger political movement to that basis.
1: I mean, if you look at the I I mean, this is looking back a little while now, but, uh, I mean, if you look at the way that the April event was policed where uh, the Reclaim Australia group was sort of um, kettled by the police in the middle of Fed Square compared to the July 2015 rally, which, uh, as you noted at the time, the policing was actually quite violent, including, you know, attacks on medics. Yeah. Which I I think a lot of people were taken aback by. Yes. Uh, You wrote in a...
0: Yeah, I mean, I was actually really taken aback by the by the cops in the April event as well. I mean, I um, was quite new to activism at the time, but I found that, I mean, it is true that they kettled the the fash, but they still they still were trying to facilitate their event in a way that I found pretty. Um, it, it, it wasn't what I was expecting as quite a green activist.
1: Yeah, I think though, but for a lot of those people that were attending that event on the uh, far right side, they weren't expecting that either. No. Uh, for many of them, it was their first experience yes. with yes. street activism, and I think that a lot of those people didn't come back.
0: No, they thought, fuck this, and that's, you know, fantastic. Like, if you can turn a loud racist into a quiet racist, that's fantastic. You know, well, Maybe
2: that's what uh, Morrison was referring to when he referred to <laughs> uh, the quiet Australians.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yes, that is what he was referring to. Absolutely.
2: My, my final question, I guess, is, as you, as you said, you presented a paper about fascists in and out of uniform. What, what do you think is missing from discussions of fascism and anti-fascism in the contemporary Australian context that uh, through their inclusion might better inform us?
0: The difficult thing from the anti-fascist point of view is that sometimes it is useful to kind of speak the liberal language of oh, goodness, aren't these fascists sort of yucky and they have these scary tattoos and they say these quite dreadful things and they don't seem uh, committed to pluralism in the same way that the rest of the respectable white folk are. Uh, You know, the the truth is, is that sometimes we will need to make those kinds of arguments in order to get media attention or in order to draw out larger crowds of... um, of people in counter protests or whatever. So so it's not to say that strategically we can't ever say things like that. And, you know, and it also is true that they are very yucky and they do have scary tattoos, you know, like that's none of those things are untrue. But what I think we mustn't do is allow them then to be positioned as anomalous, because one of the arguments that critical race theory makes, and I'm like I'm particularly thinking of Richard Dyer here, is he talks about the extreme residue of whiteness. So he talks about where there are, there will be certain manifestations of white supremacy that are really avert and extreme and sort of a bit, perhaps a bit horrifying or monstrous. And that then um, what that actually does is that enables the more normative, sort of cleaner, nicer whiteness or white supremacy to go unchallenged. And so, what I really hope that we can achieve more as anti-fascists is to is to definitely to, to, to hold the point of view that yes, you know, we would we would definitely rather that people were not out on the streets loudly calling for genocide. Like absolutely, that is something that you know we need to we need to smash and we need to ridicule and we need to be really strongly against. But that we can't. We can't allow for that logic to then say, and actually there's nothing wrong with the status quo of white supremacy that exists behind that. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, uh, with, with detention centres, with Aboriginal deaths in custody, with the really fundamentally racist way that Australia is organised as as a nation. So I guess that's the the kind of balancing act that I that I that I hope we could do a little bit more. And I think that part of how we can do that is we can see the connections between the Australian state and the fascists. And I guess the police uh, through their behaviour quite neatly illustrate this through 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 showing that they're. How partial, I guess, they feel towards towards fascist activism.
1: Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Anastasia.
0: No worries at all. Thanks, guys.
1: All right, that's all we've got time for, Andy. Well, that was very interesting, Kim. Indeed, it was. Global Intifada is up next. Uh, we'll catch you next week. See you later.